0: Welcome to this, the ninth episode of our on-farm series with RAS, the Royal Highland and Agricultural Society of Scotland. I'm Anna Davis and before we start this time I'm making a quick plea for help. You've been amazing at supporting us on social media, especially on Twitter and Facebook and we're really grateful for that, thank you. But there are so many people across Scottish farming who aren't yet on social media. We know, or at least we hope, that they'd love on-farm if only they knew about us and knew how to find us on their phone or their device. I'm thinking about maybe older people who aren't so keen on trying new things. As COVID lockdown starts to ease and you're getting face-to-face with people, please do ask them if they know about the on-farm podcast. Show them how to find us on their phone or device. The more tech-savvy amongst you will know that podcasts are dead easy – once you sign up we'll just land on your device every week for you to listen to simple as that but some people might be less familiar with the idea and could need a bit of help from you so thank you now on with the show Today on On Farm, we are heading over to the countryside area, which on a busy show day has a different feel to it. It's also busy, but it just seems to have an air of, of tranquility to it and gives people the opportunity to take a breather and to really absorb what's going on. And I am joined by Martin Dare. Um, Martin, I wonder if you could start off by just introducing yourself and letting us know who you are and, and what you do in the context of the countryside area.
1: I am the Managing Director of Rural Projects and we organise the Countryside Arena and Rural Skills Marquee on behalf of the Royal Highland Agricultural Society. The Countryside area is is quite unique within the Royal Highland Showground in the fact that it's landscaped. It's not like your traditional showground. Uh, It's covered around trees, it's uh, quite hilly, there's a lock-in, so it's definitely a different area. Compared to the busy trade stands uh, that exist elsewhere, it's not a kind of commercial area of the showground. So people are there really to relax.
0: There's a lot that goes on. You know, you've got shopping and trade stands, you've got a bit of food and drink, you've got poultry marquee, you've got honey producers, uh, you often have activities such as stunt bikes, uh, and the army will exhibit. So, logistically, you know, how, how do you choose? How do you select? The people who you think are just going to hit the right note in terms of being interesting for for members of the public.
1: Yeah, I mean that, that's a nice description you've you've made of our area. It's, it's very much a slower a slower pace. We have the two areas, I suppose you could divide it into two. We have the arena, the, the countryside arena, and that's a timed program of activities that that go on, and that might feature birds of prey displays, display of uh, ferreting skills. Uh, we have uh, Gun dog uh, display, terrier racing, but around that arena we also have a whole lot of attractions that I suppose we could be described as kind of uh, rural skills. And again, they're quite wide ranging, kind of bushcraft skills, wood carving skills, boat building, wheel wheelwright. Uh, people have been involved as as well, and. Th- that's kind of free running. Uh, it's it's nicely spaced out so the public can come in, have a look at what's going on in the arena and just mingle around those different areas which, which surround the, the arena. And in terms of putting that content together, the, the brief really that we've been given from the, the, the Highland Society and the, and the committee that we work to is to make it hands-on, make it interactive. Uh, again, the wood, the wood turning we've had stone stone carving, Archaeology Scotland have provided lots of content for, for children over the years. Um, but one of the other aspects of the brief is to, to keep bringing the changes to, to make sure that uh, okay you'll always have some continuity going from one year to the next. Uh, but it's definitely part of our remit is to, to to keep new things uh coming into the countryside arena and make it different for people.
0: yeah, because I think that's important you'll have visitors who don't attend the Highland show every year um, but you'll also have people who very much do we 've been touching quite a lot on sort of the, the broader work of the Royal Highland Society, and we 've looked at what they do out with just organizing the Highland Show, I say just but you know out with organizing the Highland Show, and a lot of what they do is all about uh, history and heritage they 've got a great heritage themselves, and I just wondered if there was any part of your brief that looks at um, choosing craftspeople and rural skills people. Um, who have that kind of heritage element to what they do, and if if that's important in terms of showcasing some of Scotland's sort of hidden hidden rural crafts and skills?
1: I suppose we we do re- realise they're a fairly special bunch of people, and we we get the passion that they have for what they're doing, and I think again that's one of the things that makes it work because that passion spills over into their performances in the arena and the demonstrations that they, they, they give. And and there is a community, really. That, that's a strong uh, feeling that we get uh, as organisers when you get all the people that perform in the countryside area together for... I mean, it's four days of the show, but they are there for build-up and, and breakdown, so we get to, to meet them and interact with them for a longer period... Uh, they they kind of form their own community, uh, so they're kind of networking while they while they're there and looking at different, I suppose, business opportunities. That gives the whole aspect of what what they're doing real validity, I think, and, and kind of underlines that it, you know the, the you know the business aspects. It's not something that's just locked up in a box and put away as part of a kind of historical uh, heritage. It, it is something that that is still actually being used on a day-to-day basis. There is a good atmosphere. It's just a good atmosphere in that area, the show. And, and it's a, probably a mixture of different things. It's the public enjoying themselves, but also the exhibitors and the, the, the people that are presenting are enjoying it as, as well.
0: Martin calls the countryside area exhibitors a special bunch of people. They certainly are dedicated to and passionate about what they do. The bulk of this podcast coming up is chats with three of them. A falconer, someone who works with wool, and the first voice you'll hear, a boat builder, telling us all about their work and their relationship with the Highland Show.
2: I am Ben Wild. I am a traditional boat builder. Have been for about twelve years or so now, um, and I run a social enterprise called Archipelago Folk School. We are a social enterprise that run boat building courses around Scotland. I went to the Northwest School of Wooden Boat Building, which, as you can probably guess, is a school of wooden boat building in the Northwest of America. So it's in it's in Washington State.
0: Is Am I right in thinking then that your business sort of has two, that your social enterprise has two elements to it? One is, is you're passing those skills that you've learned over many years on to other people and allowing them the opportunity to learn some of these crafts. And then are you, do you also build boats on, on commission in any way or is that not part of it?
2: Um, yeah, we do. We do a bit of commission boat building. The core of our activity is like boat building courses, which we do for Both for like paying customers who we run like a holiday Basically, you can come and join us for a week and build a boat, build yourself a boat in a week and take it home with you. We also do courses for like community groups where we'll go into communities and work with disadvantaged groups of various backgrounds, building boats. And then kind of around that, if I've got time, I'll do, we'll do a bit of commercial work. But we're not really a commercial boat building shop. We're an educational shop.
3: I am Rosie Hazleton, Wild Rose Escapes, and we run um craft courses, um, holidays and retreats near Canick, just in Strathglass, and we live in a woodland where we run most of our courses. And we focus a lot on wool craft, so we run spinning courses, um, We run felting, natural dyeing, natural printing courses and also retreats, which include kind of walking and yoga as well. Wow, that sounds amazing. Well, I have two pet sheep and we've just had
0: them clipped this week. So I think I probably need to cover one of your spinning classes because I just, the world's just sitting there and it seems like such a waste to not do something with it.
3: We have a a small Um, flock of Shetland sheep, so we mostly use Shetland fleece on our courses because it's very versatile. Yes, oh, lovely. Nice
0: colour as well. Mm. Yeah. So, Rosie, how how did you get into this in the first place?
3: What's been your sort of uh, path to get where you are? So I've always done a lot of craft and art. My mum's an artist, and I studied archaeology at university, and my interest was... Ancient art forms. Then, um, when I moved up to Scotland about fifteen years ago, I um, lived near a farm, and I started investigating natural dyeing. And I also had a lot of fleece, which I took from the, um, from, the from the local sheep that the the, um, the lady who ran the farm gave me. So I started learning to dye it. And then I met a lady who died. Uh, fleece and fabric up near Loch Inver and she taught me some of what she knew and I just like the idea of learning a whole process so learning about the plants and then dyeing the fleece and then doing something with the fleece you know, either felting or or spinning it and you know the whole that's what interests me and at the time people weren't getting very much of fleece which is true today as well um so it was looking at ways of using it so we started off I started off with wool crafts but I've since expanded and you know we do eco printing which is printing on silk and cotton um and fleece actually using plants we've you know incorporated also kind of walking and yoga so a lot of it is a about being outdoors.
4: My name is Ben Potter, and along with my partner Rebecca Wagon we have a, a small company doing eagle and vulture displays throughout the whole of the UK. Game fairs, country shows, agricultural events, such as the Highland and, and, and similar, and we do commercial bird scaring when we are at the events doing the displays. So we work on um, helipads and large industrial units and food production sites and things like that. So I'm sat in in a a distribution yard at a factory that makes steel sheet uh, and insulation panels waiting to go on the roof and upset some seagulls.
0: Wow. So very much bringing, I suppose, a a more traditional uh, activity into the modern era because you're you're using the skills that you've got and the birds that you've trained to to help with with modern industry
4: since i was 15 that's all i've done i've had one job in my life obviously when i was a child part time but i've won one job in my, my adult life which has been to work with falcons and uh, and hawks and eagles predominantly i've got a few owls and bits and bobs you know but um i didn't want to just be the guy who goes around doing you know sunday galas and events and shows i wanted to do it to the best of my ability and with uh, some of the world's biggest and most beautiful and unusual birds and i also wanted to be able to pay the bills basically by doing this too with a moral direction so i didn't want to stand on a supermarket sticking an owl on a kid's arm for two quid over the last you know 12 15 years built built the bird control side up to where it's probably 70 30 in favor of the bird control that we get most of our income from and then the eagle and vulture display side of things gives us the um the opportunity to have a little breeding project with some fantastic pairs of eagles that we can keep and fund by doing the displays with those birds themselves so it sort of looks after its whole its whole self
0: yeah yeah if we were to come back if i was to come and see you at the highland show next year fingers crossed um what kind of thing would i expect to see from from your displays
4: Okay, so we, um, we've slightly changed it as the years have gone on, and we've, we've got, I guess, more comfortable at doing these bigger events, and we've tried to tailor the, the whole display into a, a real nice themed educational little journey with it. So what we tend to do, myself and Rebecca, we have a, a large purpose-built vehicle, pull that into the arena. The birds are in an air-conditioned unit on the back. That slides out the back. And then over the next 35 to 40 minutes, tell a little bit of a story about the individual and also the role it plays in the wild and so on. So we begin usually with a bald eagle or similar, give that a bit of a flyabout, talk a little bit about bald eagles. And they're a fantastic success story as far as conservation goes. They've come back from the brink and now are incredibly common throughout the United States. And then we look at... Um, Some of Africa's vultures and we begin a little story of what happens when an animal dies in the in the wild wilderness of Africa The first on the scene and we fly that bird and while that one's doing its thing The second to arrive on the scene and we bring that one in and then the third one and we have all three flying together See if we can get that weight moving. Right jump guys, it's very low. Well done. Right, keep going you. Keep going, keep going, keep going That's a bit more like it. And then we finish the whole display off usually with the world's largest species of eagle which is a Stella's sea eagle I have a pair of these And I think, if I remember rightly, two or three years ago, we were doing displays at the Highland and it was like 43 mile an hour gusts of wind. They're so confident and they're so fit by that part of the year. They just fly beautifully well. And it it doesn't matter, there's like polystyrene and cardboard boxes getting blown about and marquees getting taken down and we're doing a display (laughs) with them. And what we're, we're trying to show you is the bird behave the most natural way it possibly can under a degree of control in a very unusual environment. Then when it comes in to get herself out of the sky, she will dangle her legs, wiggle her bum to try and displace a bit of air and get herself back into this arena with a beautifully well-timed flight and a fantastic finish.
0: Oh, good girl. It's a combination, I suppose, between a visual display, which is kind of what people expect, but then also a bit of an educational journey whereby people who are watching have learned a little bit more about conservation and they've learned a little bit more about bird species and and about the ways in which you have trained them i guess
4: the way i tried to do it i mean i I had a a funny upbringing and i didn't have a particularly great education but i always remember that when you were at school if you were going to go and do your work outside in the field it was always more fun than sat in the classroom
0: (laughs) always yeah
4: we wanted to do it where it was like the going outside part where it was exciting so this is a beautiful eagle her name is this i got her from there she's a bit of a handful but she flies fantastically well and let's have a look look at what she's capable of doing and it becomes that where you actually feel like you're a bit more involved and you know the individual rather than the species and the info getting drilled into you and the nice thing with the Highland is it's it's about the smallest we can work in for arena size I think it's a 40 by 30 arena and that's really on our boundary for what for getting Eagles out and back in safely that's as small as we can go but it does mean that you can pretty much like You're only metres away from your audience and your public, so you really get a good interaction and a feel from it. But also, in between doing the event, we do a a static display where the public can come across, have a chat, have a look at the birds and so on. I don't do any handling with my eagles, I, I never have done, I don't like it. I think the eagles very comfortable with me, Rebecca, our couple of dogs that are always around them, and the safe environment, we set up a big marquee with a solid backdrop. And that's their place. And they go in the arena and they do their thing. And then they come back to their place.
2: So the first year we were there, we... I lost track of what year it is even. That's terrible. 2018 we were there. And we went and we built a rowing boat over the course of the weekend. And launched it live on landward, which was quite good.
0: Oh, I saw a clip of that the just Sunday. the other day, actually. Yeah. They, they showed it again, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. yeah. All my
2: neighbours were like, I'll show you on the telly, son. Was like, yeah, <laughs> And then last year we were there. But... The first year, there wasn't much happening on the pond aside from us launching a boat and it always seemed like a shame. So last year, we also had a, a fleet of canoes and we, had, we spent all week, the whole four days sending kids out in canoes on the pond, which was great fun and really quite entertaining.
0: <laughs> oh, brilliant. That's actually led me into my next question, which was really to, to kind of find out from you what the reception was. You know, you were obviously seeing and demonstrating to many, many members of the public how how were people receiving it? What was their interest like?
2: Pretty good interest, yeah. I mean people were quite into it. So last year we had we were building a canoe, we had people on the water, and we also had some like little demo stuff that kids could play with. And um, so we just had like piles of wood shavings and folks shrieking on the water and chatting to old boys about about details of boat building. And it's just great. Yeah, it's really positive. You get some really nice feedback and some really nice chat.
0: And, and probably um, much as as other people at the Highland Show do, um, kind of igniting interest in people that they, they perhaps didn't even know they had coming along and seeing something that they probably weren't expecting to see at the Highland Show and actually kind of learning much more about what goes on in the parts of Scotland that they don't necessarily routinely visit.
2: Yeah, I think that's it. I think there's there's such a range of stuff at the Highland Show that even if you're like I've been to Highland Show six or seven times, maybe now, and every time I find things that I wasn't expecting to see. You know, it's such a vast show, and there's such a range of stuff that I think we fit into that quite well. Of people come expecting the tractors and the cattle, and then come around the corner and find some folk building a boat in a, sh- in a tent, and that's quite quite interesting.
3: The first year, I think, I was just mostly, it was me and I was doing felting. And then the second year, we were washing fleece and then we were dyeing it outdoors over fires. And then we were um, felting it and we were spinning it and we were knitting with it. And also weaving. So we had the whole cycle. That was the the first time we did the whole thing. And that went really well. That was great fun. And people could get involved and learn about each part of it. You go to
0: displays and you show people the, the tradition that, that you have learned since the age of 15. But then when you're out doing... A bird control. You're working in very modern environments and helping modern day businesses to to continue, uh, which I think is fascinating. And how how do you see that kind of contrast between between traditional and
4: modern? I, I look at it like this: If you go to the airport and there's a um, there's a Springer Spaniel sniffing at bags to detect people carrying drugs or anything along those lines, that's the application of an animal that was bred originally for another purpose being used to help people and to create a safe environment and so on. Now, for what I do, I I use, often nowadays we use hybrids, but falcons such as lanners and peregrine falcons and things like that, to basically go into an industrial, quite often an urban environment or a busy, busy area. And I use that animal's ability to scare another animal in favour of of me. So if I have a a flock of seagulls on the runway, I can let go of that peregrine falcon and them seagulls will naturally move away from that peregrine falcon as they recognise that as a predator that they've learned and evolved to evade. The application of uh, falconry to a modern situation is brilliant for me because that allows me to do it. It's an old art form that's evolved and been took to another level.
0: Gosh, yeah, I'm really inspired. I think what you do is is amazing and how, you know, how did you get involved how did you learn these skills in the first place
4: I, I started falconry at 15 year old and i fell into it i was always interested in my birds and my wildlife and all the, the country pursuits hunting shooting fishing everything as a young lad growing up in the, in the north yorkshire dales i was expelled at 15 year old and i left home shortly after and i went to work for a guy who had a falconry center and to be honest with you that's that was really what turned my, my whole situation around for me. It gave me an opportunity to work with birds of prey and it just instantly just went drilled home with me. Just something clicked and went home with me. So I set up on my own. I had a, a little little small van. I borrowed some money off my mother at the time and, and got a few birds gathered up of friends and people that I knew and set up a little display team and uh, went around doing uh, mainly secondary schools and some colleges. Got a little bit of TV and filming work where I put um, tawny owls into programs and barn owls into heartbeat and some birds were on emmerdale and similar and then um, this grew it slowly over the years to have more eagles, more vultures, more bird control measures, that sort of stuff and it really developed into that really I suppose.
2: I mean what we do at the show we're building boats really quickly and it's not really traditional craft we're using a lot of glues and plywood and stuff but still there's a sense of like a heritage to it that people really value and that idea of just being able to knock something up is quite exciting. People always think of boat building as being this slow, dramatic thing. I often quite, I quite carefully try and move away from being thought of as like a traditional or heritage craft as boat building because I think it puts it in a certain like, in a world where there's all we're filled with old guys with white beards talking about knots around a pint of cider, which is you know a nice world and I like that. But I really want boat building. A part of the, part of the folk school was always to make boat building much more accessible and much more open to people, and so we try and like simplify the language a lot and talk a lot about how it's not like this like rarefied magnificent thing. It's a great thing, but it's also something that anyone can do, and it's really approachable. And so, a lot of what we try to do is to democratize that.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, because it is about about the modernization. You're keeping something alive that once was a traditional skill, but you're modernizing it and using. Modern tools um, and and you're bringing it into the into the 21st century and allowing people who perhaps wouldn't ordinarily get access to doing crafts like that to have the opportunity to learn something
2: and just to feel like it could be for them rather than being for like rich old folk, which is who are the kind of which is you know there's nothing wrong with rich old folk, but they are the demographic that traditionally engage in wooden boat world. <laughs> yes, one of my bugbears. I don't know if i should say this on a podcast, but why not? Maybe I should, um, is that there's an organisation called the Heritage Craft Association which is a great organization they do some great work but they are based down in london and it is an overwhelmingly white middle-class organization of people who exult over how to make a ladder traditionally out of split staves of wood and like yes sure making a ladder in a traditional manner is nice as a like a heritage skill but it's not a useful heritage skill anymore because you can buy a ladder The only reason our boats are still useful and important is that the boats that we build are better than other boats. Like, we build a sea kayak which weighs less and performs better than almost any other sea kayak you can buy. If you spend, like, £8,000 on a carbon fibre sea kayak, it'll be better. But otherwise, our boats are better because wood is an amazing material and it's practical and useful. Because if if you're relying on heritage crafts being saved for their own sake, then you need to find somebody who really cares about exactly which way the staves were split when you made your oak weave basket or whatever. And ultimately, it doesn't matter. You've just got to make a nice basket. So there is that tension there always. We we live in that tension, I guess.
0: One of the things we're talking about in this podcast episode is about trying not to lose these traditional crafts and, and trying to pass them on. And, you know, my grandma taught me how to knit. Um I'm not nearly as good and will never be as good as she was, but I you know I have the basic skill. But actually darning has has kind of left our family. My mum I think still darns socks, but I certainly don't. And so in a sense you know some of these things are carrying on and some are being lost. But I suppose why why do you think it's important in a broader sense beyond just the Highland show? that people do uh, maintain a knowledge and and a skill set in some of these traditional crafts?
3: Today's world, you know, we're very much a throwaway society and not much is made to last. And I think if you don't give children the skills to be able to mend a hole in their jumper or even you know their leggings they just will chuck them in the bin whereas in fact they could just sew it up or darn it and it's going to last a lot longer I mean and I think just also making things for yourself gives you a huge amount of satisfaction a lot of people who come on our courses our week-long courses you know a lot of them are fairly stressed when they arrive and focusing in on doing craft for a week they go back You know, some of them go back in tears because they've released so much and relaxed so much that they can't believe that, you know, that that the craft and being outdoors and has allowed to do them so to do that but i think it's focusing on something other than what's in your head and spinning or sewing or weaving or felting allows you to do all of that because you're just focusing on what you're doing so it's so good for your mental health
4: you know if you live in a, in inner a city glasgow or edinburgh or if you're London or Manchester, and you go to a, a country-themed event, and you actually see somebody actually, you know, who has a ferret and he tells you, he puts it on a rabbit, or a rabbit jumps into a net, and he sells that, and makes a living from it. It must be incredible to realise it actually goes on. It's a great way of just discovering these things out there, you know, and if somebody lets go of a falcon or an eagle and it flies on the sky and comes back to them willingly, admittedly there's a reward factor, because there's no domestication, but it's not different to a dog coming back and getting, you know, a pat on the head, a reward in a different way.
0: Why? Why do you think it's important for skills and crafts such as yours um to be kept alive in scotland
4: not, not just scotland everywhere i think skills and crafts yeah, need, to be kept, yeah. need to be kept alive don't they really i mean obviously this is a, a, a predominantly scottish audience when we're at the highland show but I, I know i know people that travel from the southwest of england to go to the highland show because they just love the, the the whole the whole show environment and every Agricultural show is slightly different, but the Highland is a very special one for us. And I think really all, all sort of these traditional crafts and stuff—they weren't always crafts, were there You know, 50, 60, 100 years ago, this is how people lived.
2: The thing that's interesting with boats is—I guess—break like quite a few of these crafts. But boats were such the the essential possessions of people who lived on the coast. You know, nowadays, if you live in the middle of no, live in rural Scotland, you probably can't get away without a car. In previous ages, you probably couldn't get away without a boat. All the rural places that people live on the West Coast, especially, they seem like they're in the middle of nowhere. But if you draw lines on the sea, they're right next to each other. Boats are so integral to the way we used to live in Scotland. We've kind of lost sight of that because we've drawn, put roads on top of the land. But if you needed a boat, you built a boat or you had your neighbour build your boat. And so they were much more, they were everywhere. And the, the sense of need and the way you acquired them was very, was very democratic and I really like that idea and I like that it's accessible to everybody and then when we work with communities we work with communities that have never built anything really like we work with lots of people who've never picked up tools and never had the opportunities to pick up tools and no one's ever trusted them we've worked with like eight nine ten year olds who've never been trusted to do anything and we'll give them a power drill and tell them to start drilling holes and things Wow! and their yes. eyes light up they're like oh my god I can't believe you let me do this I'm like yeah it's fine just go for it um and you know you watch over their shoulder so it is actually safe but they feel that sense of empowerment from having a chance to do that
0: yes absolutely
4: we mentioned before about the use of like you know gun dogs and the use of ferrets and all these these different things you know i have a friend who he was a fantastic rabbit catcher ferreter but he's been using the ferrets to take uh cables under roads by getting them to go through pipes taking ropes and pulling cables through and all sorts of amazing little modern applications you think that's so simple that you know and we would have lost we we would lose a lot more and we're going to lose a lot more unless there's somewhere people can go and actually see this firsthand speak to the guy have a chat with a lassie you don't have anyone there that's not passionate and not skilled in what they do that's a premier event it has the best of the best there and you're going to see some fantastic stuff so if you want to learn a little bit more about wild game you want to learn about cooking catching providing for yourself you want to understand falconry or you just have an interest in birds of prey or conservation these places are great to go and talk to people that are just doing it every single day and that's what i think the best thing about an event like that is
2: one last one thing we do do at the royal hand show that i really love Mm -hmm. and that i feel really strongly about is that the canoeing sessions and all the things we do are totally free Mm. And when kids show up and they get they want to come out on a canoe, they always ask how much it is. And when we tell them that oh. it's free, they can't believe it. They're like, "What? It's free?" Yeah. Just that sense that you could just have something and someone could just give you a thing and it could just be free because it's fun.
0: Yes.
2: That's actually quite rare. Yeah. And I think that's the sort of thing that we want to like hold on to as much as possible.
0: Definitely. So Martin we've we've heard there from from three really inspiring exhibitors who all come and show their wares give us an idea of their skills and, and and what they do at the Highland show but I actually have to admit that this episode hasn't panned out the way that I thought it would and and that actually is positive because I kind of thought that the viewpoint would be that the Highland show is a vehicle for preserving all types of rural craft in aspic, as it were. But actually, what we've heard is that it's also about modernising these crafts. It's about showcasing to the public some of the modern applications. And also, as as Rosie touched on, it's about what some of these activities, whether they be outdoor activities or indoor crafting, can actually benefit our lives um, in terms of Giving us uh, a release from some of the stresses that that we experience in our day to day world, and I just wondered, you know, from from a, a not an outsider's perspective, but because you're very much involved in this, but from somebody who organises it rather than actually doing the craft, I'd love to know what your perspective is on on what what this all means and and w- what you think of it.
1: Absolutely, and I think I think they know that themselves. You know, they've expressed that in, in interviews that you've you've done with them. Just turning up to three or four events in a year isn't going to sustain those skills or or that business. It needs it needs to have wider application. We are conscious as organisers that the, the people that are coming along to the Island Show and, and working with us are doing lots of practical work outside of the show ring. Again, that helps to make it authentic. If, if the public are looking into that arena and seeing a skill, uh, you know, if, if the presenters are explaining what they do in real life, it makes it, you know, a real skill uh, that people can uh, appreciate and see in, in, in wider use. So, yeah, no, that, that's that's definitely a big part of it.
0: We've done a whole episode further back in the series about the Highland Show as a business event. And I guess that's it. You've probably hit the nail on the head, really, that for any of these heritage skills and activities and crafts to continue into the modern era they've got to be be synced and tied in with business otherwise these people can't exhibit at the Highland show they can't engage with you and ultimately they can't be seen by consumers
1: that's right I mean the Highland show attracts a really wide audience both from town and and country and I think when we are putting the program together it does give us a good insight into what people from towns and cities might be looking for
0: that's it for this time. Thank you to Martin Dare and thank you also to the two Bens, Ben Wild from Archipelago Folk School and Ben Potter from Birds of Prey Displays. And thanks to Rosie Hazelton from Wild Rose Escapes. It's Monty with you next time with a look at what it means to breed us when their stock takes home rosettes and silverware from the Royal Highland Show.